The Talking Point with Kathy Motlatana. Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. All right, so we're looking at the status, the global status of HIV-AIDS. Let me welcome onto the show Dr. Yogan Pillay, who is an extraordinary professor in the Division of Public Health and Health Systems, Stellenbosch University. Dr. Pillay, good morning. Good morning, Kathy, and good morning to your listeners. Dr. Tato Chidari, let me try that again. Chidarikire is the director for HIV prevention programs at the National Department of Health. Dr. Tato, good morning to you. Apologies for almost butchering your surname there. <laughs> it's okay. It's not an easy one. Good morning to you and the guests, and good morning to the listeners as well. All right. Later, thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for coming on. Later on in the show, we'll be joined by Dr. Ayula Mutibi, who is an executive director at Right to Care. So I think a good place for us to start would be just looking at where we are globally in the fight against HIV AIDS. And um, the, the, a look at the fact sheet, uh, 2022 fact sheet of UNA, AIDS, of course, tells us that we're not necessarily any closer to the complete eradication of um, of HIV than we are. That, that we're not closer to the complete eradication of HIV as we had planned to be, especially nearer to 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 twenty thirty. Uh, Doctor Pillay. Kathy, uh, thanks, uh, and hello to my uh, fellow panelists as well. Uh, no, absolutely right. Um, so the, the progress has slowed, as UNAIDS showed us in their latest report, global report. And, of course, you know, the COVID pandemic didn't help at all because, like in many countries, including our country, many of the resources that were allocated to HIV were kind of redirected to the COVID response. Now, you know, that's understandable, especially, you know, in the early uh, period, especially the first three waves that we experienced. You know, and the, the idea then was to protect lives of people who had COVID as well as protect the health system from being overburdened. So it's understandable, but it had a significant impact on people being tested, people having access to treatment, uh, you know, in many countries around the world, including South Africa. Uh, and the consequence is that between 2020, uh, 2020 and 2021, there's been a decline in the number of of, uh, sort of there's been an increase in the number of uh, new infections compared to the previous year, or the rate of decline was much lower than in previous years. So, and the second point I want to make, Cathy, is, you know, even by 2030, the world won't eliminate HIV. We'll still have it, but the levels at which we will have it will be, should be significantly reduced relative to now. So the, the way we phrase it is that it will cease to be a, public health threat by 2030. But people will still contract these infections, like people contract STIs and TB currently. So we won't eliminate it completely, you know, unlike polio, which is eliminated. Uh, so you know, that's a distinction I think we need to make. Mm. But what's fairly clear mm. is that we need to ramp up our efforts to get people tested for HIV, immediately put on treatment, and then supported to continue this lifelong treatment because it's now a chronic disease. Uh, I, I want yeah. to. I, I want to also invite onto the show uh, Cynthia Mwalu Lungu, who is a senior regional gender advisor. This is uh, UNAIDS regional support team, East and Southern Africa. Cynthia, good morning to you. 
Good morning, Kathy. Good morning to my fellow panelists and uh, all the listeners. Fantastic. So, so we'll get your contributions in a moment. Uh, Tato, it sounded like you also wanted to add something just on that initial question. Um, I think Dr. Pillay kind of wrapped it, really, that it is important and critical to note that as much as we are working towards um, a much more steeper trajectory, you know, in terms of reducing incidents, we do understand that by 2030, we are supposed to really, really be as significantly lower than where we are today. And yes, I don't want to really reiterate, but he has already spoken about um, the, the challenge that COVID actually caused. You know, with regards to reversing or almost reversing the gains that we had made, you know, in terms of uh, traction towards reducing new infections. So really, I think it's also important that as we move, because we already know where we want to get to, we know what we need to do. We need to ramp on the how and to ensure that we, we really target where the infection is high, you know, target for, we target the burden so that we can make maximum impact. So uh, let me pause here. And, and we'll get into some of what, where the challenges lie for a country like South Africa. But when we come back from this break, I'll allow Cynthia to give us a bit of perspective in terms of where the rest of the world is and how South Africa is actually comparing, especially when it comes to the areas where we are seeing a regression. We know that South Africa dealing with the highest HIV prevalence rate, running the biggest HIV treatment program globally. So we are a big player uh, when it comes to the conversation around HIV AIDS. All right, we continue the conversation on the talking point. We're focusing on HIV AIDS this hour and really looking at the work that has been done. Where are the areas of progress? What is leading to the regression we are seeing in some areas, especially uh, following, you know, the the couple of years that we've had to focus on COVID-19? Cynthia, I want to bring you in here and really give you a moment to give us perspectives in terms of some of perhaps the key trends that we are seeing in the rest of the world and how South Africa compares um, when it comes to how we are dealing with HIV AIDS? Yeah, uh, thank you very much, Cathy. So the new Global AIDS um, report is actually called In Danger. Um, and that really, the, the title of the report itself is really telling, uh, telling of the worrying trend um, for, for HIV, the HIV response. From a global perspective, the new report reveals that the world is not on course to end AIDS by 2030. Um, as I said, the data and numbers are really powerful and worrying. Millions of lives are now at risk. Uh, the 3.6% reduction in global HIV infections in 2021 is the smallest annual fall since 2016. Approximately 1.5 million new HIV infections occurred last year. And this is over 1 million more than the global targets agreed in the 2021 political declaration on HIV and AIDS. And if you look at the current trajectory, there will be a projected 1.2 million new HIV infections worldwide in 2025. And this is three times more than the target of 370. So we were aiming at at least 370,000 by 2025, but the projection shows that there's going to be 1.2 million new HIV infections. 
And so if you look at Eastern Southern Africa, it still remains the region most heavily affected by HIV, with 20.6 million people. Um, this is about 54% of all people living with HIV in the world are in Eastern Southern Africa. The region, that said, the region itself um, has actually made some substantial progress, actually more, more progress compared to others, um, other regions. So the number of new HIV infections among all ages, for instance, declined by 44% from 2010 to 2021. But the issue is, even though the progress continues in Eastern Southern Africa, it is lower. And this is where the, the challenge is. It seems a slower progress than what is needed to reach the, the, the 2025 and 2030 targets. Um, and then if, if you go on to say, you know, what, what are the, the, the issues? Why, um, why the slowing down in progress? So you look at, um, you know, progress is faltering as HIV infections really remain high for key populations, for children, for young women and adolescent girls. Um, and we also have a significant number of, of people living with HIV and high infections in humanitarian settings. In Eastern Southern Africa, we, we are having a number of humanitarian crises. If you look at uh, Mozambique, if you look at Tigray and, and all those countries. So if you look at women and girls continue to be disproportionately affected by HIV, accounting for about 63% of the region's new HIV infections. Uh, the granular data that we are collecting in many countries are showing us that in the age of 15 to 19, 85% of new infections are among females. Adolescent girls in this region are three times more likely to acquire HIV compared to adolescent boys and, uh, and young men in the same age group. So, we Cynthia, get about 4,200 so, uh, new infections amongst 15 to 24-year-olds, yes. I, I just wanted to come in there. That figure that you read is, I mean, that is a devastating figure of mm. um, particularly the teens. Please, please read it out for us again, the 85% prevalence rate. So among 15 to 19 year olds yeah 85 percent of new infections are among females mm. and then we get 4200 adolescent girls and young women aged 15 to 24 years get infected every week mm. every week there are 4200 adolescent girls and young women who get infected with hiv in this region Cynthia. And then obviously we've got our key populations, a big number as well. And then there's also pediatric HIV, which is an area of concern. So just to say quickly that, you know, 77,000 babies were born in 2021 with HIV. Mm. And that is big. That is huge. Yogan, I just want to come to you quickly because I know we're going to have to let you go at, at, at around 10.30. Um, I remember a couple of years ago already uh, when South Africa hosted the um, the HIV AIDS conference in KZN, the issue around teenage infections was really starting to get the attention of the world because it seemed to be a group that, um, you know, it, it was emerging quite strongly as a group that is getting new infections. And, of course, there are a number of reasons behind that. Do you find that we have been able to respond adequately enough as a society to those challenges? And and I think when it comes to dealing with HIV AIDS, it's really one of the programs where 
um, government has, has been doing a lot uh, to contribute to, to the fight against HIV? No, that's true, Kathy. Uh, you know, government, uh, together with civil society uh, and other sectors, have been you know, doing a fair amount. Um, but our response, uh, you know, um, as Cynthia says, has plateaued globally. And we need new ways of thinking about reimagining. You know, I wrote a paper recently for Spotlight, you know, the journal published by the TAC in Section 27, in which I argue that we need to reimagine South Africa's response. And it needs to really be community and youth-led. And, you know, we need to figure out how best to do that and how to include that in our new strategic plan, which currently the South African National AIDS Council is coordinating the writing of. You know, for the period 2023 to 2027. So we've got to reimagine our response. You know, we can't continue doing the same things in the same way as we've been doing in the past five years. The next five years, we've got to do things differently. And the key question is what? The good news is that, at least in South Africa, even though overall, you know, adults and young people all together, we have about 575 new infections every day, almost 600 new infections every day in South Africa. Um, of which a significant proportion is adolescent girls and young women. The good news is that the younger age groups, the 12 to 15 and the 15 to 19, the infection rates are coming down. Um, the biggest challenge is in the 20 to 24-year-olds and the 25 to 30-year-olds currently. That's where we're seeing the significant new infections. And what we do know is that older men are infecting younger, younger, young girls and young and adolescent girls. And, you know, that is related to gender-based violence. It's related to, you know, what's happening in society uh, generally. And, you know, given that we are in Women's Month, we have to talk about these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we need a societal response as well as a, you know, health system response uh, to this. So we therefore need, and I think, you know, the COVID, HIV showed the COVID response to some of the gains we've made. We now need to learn from the COVID response and integrate some of those lessons into the HIV response, like having community-led, youth-led programs, bottom-up rather than only top-down interventions. Communication needs to be led by local leaders, using you know technology a little bit more. Um, you know those kinds of community-based interventions are going to be more important as we get towards 2030 if we want to reach the 2030 targets that we've set. And I think that's why I've argued in this little paper that I wrote that we need to reimagine our response to HIV Mm. and bring in the community, bring in the youth, not only to just consult with them, but design programs with them, implement programs with them, and have them lead accountability from the ground up, you know, holding government, holding civil society organizations accountable for the money that's being spent. Because, you know, between PEPFAR, the government, and and uh, and the Global Fund, there's a lot of money for HIV, mm. much more mm. than for TB and malaria and all the other things we mm. do. All right. We've got to use those, those resources much more efficiently and differently. All right. Dr. Pele, let me thank you so much for coming on and contributing to the conversation. I wish you could stay longer, but I know you've got other commitments to get to. It's 10.30. We'll continue this conversation with our guests after the latest headlines. SAFM 104 to 107 nationwide. 
All right, we continue the conversation on the talking point. We're focusing on HIV AIDS for this hour. You heard some of the statistics um, given to us by Cynthia of UNAIDS just about just where we are from a regional perspective with those figures and, um, you know, the, the, the rate that is most alarming is the infection rate amongst adolescent girls. And as you heard from Dr. Pele also, uh, you know, the age group between 22 heading up to uh, 26. Let me invite into the conversation Dr. Yula Mutibi, who is an executive director at Right to Care. Dr. Mutibi, good morning. Good morning, Kathy, and uh, good morning to the panelists, uh, Tato and Cynthia. Tato, I just wanted to bring you in here because the point that was being made by Yogan before he left the conversation is is quite an important one. How we look at the infection rate of young girls by older women in the context of a country that is facing such high gender-based violence and femicide rates and the contribution of that to these figures how do you as the health department approach this conversation because it sounds to me that there are many areas where the issues intersect and it's almost like we we need to deal with one in order to get a proper handle on the other right so um, as government we are actively implementing programs that are actually targeting men, you know, men-specific programs. We have seen some challenges in terms of reaching men in particular because of um, the lack of uh, what you would call health-seeking behavior in men in general. And this has been also proven through some studies. So what we do is to try and bring services to, to men, to the people. We try to ensure that we have outreach activities, we are working also with um, our public health facilities through our partners, where you'll find that there are some um, extended times where we are actually uh, receiving or expecting men to come through to get their services. We've also um, approved um, a strategy for men that is called Men's Health um, Strategy, and we have interventions there from a young person throughout to adolescence and into an older man in particular. Um, of interest is what was mentioned by Jürgen again, that, you know, phylogenetically it has been proven that younger girls, you know, between the age of um, the 16, 18 to 20, are infected by the older men. So what we're trying to do is we are, um, um, you know, empowering the young girl as well in terms of negotiating, you know, safe sex practices and so on, but we try also to reach the older men in terms of um, interventions that have been proven to work. You know, medical medical condition, we continue to promote condom use. We try to reach the younger people with pre-exposure prophylaxis, PrEP, and improve, you know, the bucket of interventions for young people as well, and that includes sexual reproductive health and rights. So basically, within our national strategic plan, which is the national response to HIV, we are ensuring that we have active interventions that actually target men. And we have, um, you know, our for men, we have men-led activities. It's very important 
to have um, community-led activities, person-centered interventions, so that we treat every individual with their own, um, you know, challenges as they come through. So that's basically mm. what we have been uh, doing as government to try and ensure that we reach out to the men in particular based on the evidence that has come out um, from the phylogenetic studies as well as from the, the data that we see. Do these interventions respond specifically to um, the fact that the the nature of many of these relationships that are taking place would be a a transactional one Mm -hmm. and that many of these teenage girls would be entering into these relationships due to for for, driven primarily by financial research by financial Mm -hmm. reasons. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so in 2016, our then deputy president, who is our president now, launched um, a campaign, a country campaign called She Conquered Campaign. And She Conquered had five objectives, which were basically led or, or, or mainly for adolescent girls and young women. We don't leave the male sexual partner, but this was focused mainly on young girls. And these objectives include keeping young girls in school. So, you know, the fight against HIV is not just a health fight. And if we're talking about an adolescent a girl, we're talking about a young person who is still in high school, maybe in TVET and a little bit towards university. So education, both basic and higher, comes in. So the objectives included at least keeping young girls in school and because it has been proven that that kind of education at least empowers the young person. Um, it was also to reduce incidence um, in, in young people to prevent pregnancies. But towards the, the skill that I'm thinking that maybe that's what you're trying to, to work towards, we also had an objective of intrapreneurial kind of like skills to ensure that young people are also given the skill to actually take care of themselves in that in terms of intrapreneur, as well as dealing with um, gender-based violence. So this campaign went on for three to four years, and now we are incorporating it into our intervention, you know, programmatic intervention. We also have other interventions like DREAMS, the DREAMS project that is supported by PEPFA. You remember also, you're going to talk about resources. So we pull in resources in a multi-sectoral manner to ensure that we empower a, a young girl who is resilient. Because yeah. as much as we know that most of the transactional relationships that you're talking about, there are power dynamics there, economic dynamics, where you may find that the younger uh, person in the relationship, more often the young woman, is actually, I would say, antagonized, for lack of a better word, but also compromised in that they don't feel the, you know, they don't have the power to negotiate because, again, there is a heavy reliance on the economic um power that is coming with the older men. And so we try by all means to ensure that we empower the young girls, even through education. We have comprehensive sexuality education. We have programs within basic education that are empowering the young girls to ensure that they, they have skills that they can use as they grow older. Because then what happens is, as the young girl grows older, they then meet with their age mates in terms of the young men, and then the infection happens again. And the young men grow and they infect the younger girl. You know, it's a cycle, a vicious cycle that we need to ensure that we cut at critical points to cut the, the, 
the, the cycle of transmission. Mm. Let me let yeah. me bring in uh, Dr. Yula, give you a chance also to, to weigh in on this issue uh, before I come yeah. back to you, Cynthia. Yeah, so uh, thanks, Kathy, and uh, thanks, Cynthia, for uh, leading on that uh, DREAMS initiative. So we, as uh, Right to Care, not-for-profit organization, we work with the Department of Health, and one of the programs which is uh, um, looking at empowering young girls to reduce the HIV infections is the DREAMS program, DREAMS uh, supporting girls to be determined, resilient, empowering them to say no to early sex and providing mentoring and also providing means of uh, safe sex. So we are working with these girls to look at their social networks, which talk to testing and bringing in their partners for testing. Another area is the area you touched on, Kathy, of uh, money. Uh, the, the DREAMS program also supports economic strengthening. There are packages which are provided to these youngers who are in the program to support them to ensure that they are able to say no to men with money. There's also a family support component, uh, talking to parents about how you parent these young girls positively. Uh, girls also learn social skills. They are supported on that. And then an important aspect, especially this, the Women's Month, is the prevention of gender-based violence. So there's education, there's interaction around what is TBV, what is acceptable behavior from your partner, this helps to reduce the risk of GBV and also to identify those who are at risk so that they can be sent for support uh, to the other GBV uh, supporting units. So really uh, what, what I think Jürgen was talking to is this. This is a societal issue. It requires a societal and community response targeted at the girls, young women who are at risk, but mostly also targeted at men. Right, men should not be left out. Now, our V uh, MMMC circumcision program is looking at supporting men, right, to provide them with circumcision services, which will reduce the HIV infection rates. However, as part of this program, there's men's education, there's education around what is acceptable behavior, there's men's in visos, men coming together to talk about these issues. I think that one of the biggest challenges is that men are not talking, and a lot of the programs are probably just facing women, but I think it's time enough for us to start programs which are facing, looking at men, working with men, and uh, uh, getting men right to understand high risk, to understand accessible behavior, and uh, in that sense, we are looking at reducing HIV. Mm. I'll be taking your calls on this issue, 011-714-2006. Uh, your contributions to our conversation this morning on the WhatsApp line, uh, 0614-104-107. Uh, Cynthia, you know, we're talking a lot about um, these relationships that are taking place and, and the issue of, of age that's coming in there. But um, I wonder where are we on, on the issue of multiple partners that also um, is contributing to the, the, the rates of infections that, that we're still having to deal with? 
Yeah, uh, before before I actually respond to that one, Kathy, I wanted to chime in on the issue of um, of education. You know, back in the day, um, a decade ago, HIV was really restricted just to the to the health sector. But over time, we have learned that it's beyond the health sector and the structural issues, the society issues that have been talked about by uh, other panelists coming to play. But I want to hone onto the issue of education, which is really important because the evidence shows that keeping girls in school to the end of secondary school reduces chances of HIV infection by 50%. It reduces chances of HIV infection by 50%. And with that in mind, um, about a year ago, the heads of uh, UNICEF, NSPA, UN Women, UNESCO, and UNED came together and crafted an, an initiative which was called Education Plus. And Education Plus has actually been launched um, in South Africa with the Department of Basic Education. And what it does is it focuses on completion of secondary education. It then leverages on the education system um, as an entry point for universal access to comprehensive sexuality education, access to sexual and reproductive health services. It looks at issues of GBV, and then it also looks at issues of uh, school-to-work transition because one of the, um, one of the factors that is, uh, as you said, that is driving the high prevalence rates among um, adolescent girls and young women is the transactional relationships that you, that you highlighted. And those transactional relationships does an overlap with the multiple partners that you then bring into play, which is really um, all of them both are risky because most often the girls do not have the power to, to negotiate for, for safe sex um, because they are obviously in a financially um, disadvantaged position. So if we empower the girls, um, and ensure that we keep them in school and we deal with all these other structural barriers that are there. Um, and then we also ensure that there's access to, to prevention, uh, new, new technologies particularly, prevention methods, the PrEP, um, whether it's oral PrEP, injectable PrEP, um, for, for obviously adolescent girls and young women that are of age and can access those. Um, and you also look at condom use, safe sex practices, just to ensure the young women have got um, this basket of choice. And more recently, obviously, there's talk of the the the, the, the ring, um, the the ring um, uh, as a, a feminist choice for that uh, young girls, adolescent girls, and young women can actually use if it's put in a basket with with prep and many other prevention, HIV prevention um, options. Do you think that the availability of um, all of this medication and interventions, you've talked about PrEP and others, that that has contributed to more promiscuous behavior? I don't think so. Mm. I don't think so because, um, uh, in my opinion, this came about because the HIV infections were already on the rise, right? Mm. So this was a, a way to counter the rise of the infections. And we have made traction in countering the rise of the infections. Um, if, imagine for a second if we didn't have these prevention um, options available. Um, then imagine what the outcome, I can only imagine what the outcome would be. I, I, I can never know. But I really think they've played a good part mm. in countering mm. those infections. So the... the the behaviors were there. People were already having sex. The options have just made it, the options, the HIV prevention methods have just made available the, the option to have safe sex.
All right. Um, I'm going to bring in Gabriel. Gabriel, you're calling us from Bumalanga. Good morning. Good morning. How are you, Kathy? I'm well, thank you, Gabriel. Very well. Um, Kathy, I'd just like to clarify a few things that um, one of the uh, ladies on the panel has just mentioned. She has been mentioning a lot of things about prevention measures and everything. Yes, they are there. But the issue, the real issue is that most of these female, or should I say young adolescents, it starts from their background. Do you understand? They are living in poor situations. They're living in situations whereby most of the parents are not working. Do you understand? And then that pushes it to a situation where, as I remember when I was listening to the radio, um, I think it was yesterday, they said about uh, 60% of the pupils won't finish, won't get uh, through to grade 10, and then half of that won't even finish matric. Now imagine in a class there's like more than 50% are female uh, girls uh, at the class, do you understand? Now, if they don't have that education, what's the next best, and they don't have any experience or any source of education besides their level of uh, under grade 12, their next level of getting uh, some form of money, you understand, some form of uh, way to make a living or, or help at home, it's what the older men, they start approaching them now. And then they come up with the thing, listen, I can give you this. I can give you this money. And that is very easy for them to subject themselves into that situation because they really do not have any options. Mm. You understand? And do you think if an older man uh, providing all this money for this young adolescents, giving them girlfriend's um, allowance, 2000 3000 their peers would not be able to afford it because they were not working at that stage. You understand? Now, this older person is playing this role of um, supporting this lady, and not only that, also the family at the same time with this money. Do you think she's going to be able to tell this older person, please put on a condom? No, that's not going to work. He will be controlling everything that will happen in around and the situation of that young uh, adolescent. Do you understand me? Yeah. So before we get to a point where we say um, there are prevention measures, here they are, they know about them. But the thing is, it starts way back, do you understand? Back at home, where things are bad, where the situation is bad, where there is no employment. Look at the high employment rate, do you understand? And then it comes to a point where the, the, the young and the lesson girl does not finish school. She has no background, uh, educational background. Most of the time, I'm sorry to say, but that's how it, uh, and where it ends up. All right. Whereby they are used by this uh, mm. older person. Gabriel, so I, I think I think what you're saying, you know, uh, a, a lot of the panelists have have highlighted exactly that point. You know, you've just, um, you know, of course, ex- uh, described it a lot more explicitly. But yeah, that that's part that's that's what the panelists have have been pointing us to. Um, I'm going to have to pause it there with you. Uh, we have a break coming up. I'll take a couple of more callers and also. Uh, get some responses from our guests this morning. All right, let me go to the Western Cape. Uh, Bangiliswe, good morning. Uh, good morning, Kathy Musasani. Am I right? Yes. Uh, and your guest is before you there. And the country as a whole. Good day. Uh, I am a responsible parent. I got three daughters, but I managed to sit down with them. And my first daughter has finished university. She only got a baby now. She finished school. Uh, uh, what I want to say to you is you, you guys, you're wasting your time. Most of the time, you're talking about this. 
the problem in our country now, especially with black people, our kids, our parents, uh, their parents, some of them, their parents are very poor. And then the problem is the beer, drinking alcohol. Uh, our women, uh, if I may say so, I'm sorry if uh, you can blame me on that. Once they see money, their brains don't work. Even our kids, when their parents are poor, when they see money from anyone, they, they get they, they get into that situation where they want to for sexual intercourse. There is clinic, there is condom, they don't want to be seen. And the grant as well, they get the grant, they want that money. You see, this is a problem in our country. You, you guys, you must start from the, if you fight fire, you must fight it from the base. Because to waste time and talking this, you will advise them. Same like the women's rights. Most of the women in this country, they create problems by themselves. In the end, we end up having all these divas getting music, getting killed, they fall in love with people, they create all this. Stop you, fight the fire from the base. The problem is we have to, 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 to start, especially with black people, we got our, we, we got our culture. We have to stick to our culture. And the government is giving more rights to the kids. You can't give a 12-year-old a right to, to, to take out a baby. If she's pregnant, she must take out a abortion all that. This is a problem. You must fight the fire from the base than talking on their say prevention and all this and all that. They they go on social media and um, uh, these are Facebook and all these. They get all these things. If okay. it, they this school around outside here, yeah, when they are together, they share all this. I can't listen to your father. He's unexpected. He's an old person. You can't listen at all this. You people, you must fight the fire from the place. You see, there is no right to keep on making all this. You're wasting time. You're wasting money. Bangili is where? Let's leave it there for this morning. Edwin uh, in Bloom. Good morning, Edwin. Hi, Kate. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Go for it. I'm fine, thank you. Okay, Kate. First of all, I'd like to appreciate the quality of research done on HIV and AIDS management, get identification by our fellow South African or African researchers. I agree with what has been said, but one question that I would like to ask everyone is that what happens to these quality researches and recommendations? Because I can assure you that if they were properly implemented, we wouldn't see the results that these researches are showing. We would have seen reduction in HIV and AIDS management and more awareness amongst the, the youth. What I can assure you is that this past two years, HIV has been forgotten. People started not being scared of HIV anymore because the focus was on COVID-19. I think South Africa, as a country with a, a lot of HIV infections all over the world, they should be having a standalone HIV program that will not easily be distracted by new pandemics that are coming. I am worried with that. And I think looking at young black females, I think they are more uh, vulnerable than anyone in this country. And I agree with what the researchers found out. But then we need, uh, we, we might say that uh, school reduces the risk of HIV contraction in youth. But the question is to what point? Okay. Let's, focus, let's focus and start looking at girls in tertiary universities. You'll find out that they are more vulnerable due to the fact that there's no extra moral activities at universities for majority of black kids. Majority of black kids, they don't play sports. They only focus at uh, alcohol parties, 
And those things, they are mostly uh, associated with uh, drugs, human trafficking, uh, gender-based violence, which ultimately lead to high dropout of uh, black kids. All right, and Edwin. if you can look around, the businesses that are buzzing around in Gezi, they are alcohol associated. Okay. So I agree that it's not only Department of Health that needs to be concerned uh, in this matter. Department of Police, they need to ensure that there are no uh, alcohol stores around the students. They need the, the social development needs to to buzz in. Uh, and the, the, the Department of Education, higher education as well, they need to ensure that Surroundings around universities, they are education-inducive. Kids not need to have access, easy access to to alcohol because I can assure you, universities right now, they are Edwin, where HIV is. We're going, to, we're going to have to leave it there. We're quickly running out of time for the conversation, but I think um, you, you've, you've made the point. So um, I've got under two minutes left. Uh, Tato, let me come to you, give you a chance just to respond very briefly to the callers, please. From the callers as well, I think this really shows us that uh, callers are aware of what is happening. They are aware of um, the interventions that are out there, and they agree that this is something that needs to be approached on a multisectoral level, not just from a health point. We also need to be kind of um, careful not to, um, you know, not to justify the fact that young people will go into transactional relationships. We need to be cautious to ensure that, as um, my colleague from Right to Care has also said, we work very hard to ensure that we, you know, we capacitate and we empower the young people to ensure that as they are going to school, as they are getting their education, even if it's at least at, um, at a basic education for now, ensure that they finish at least until, until they reach matric, and ensure that they are capacitated entrepreneurially as well, because this seems to be one of the challenges that leads to transactional relationships. So for now, I think we just need to all make sure that we work together and ensure that we strengthen our interventions and continue to capacitate and empower our young girls as well as the men. Because just because a young girl does not have money doesn't mean that it gives an older man the right to approach them and give them money and then put them at risk in that way. All right. So maybe I'll pause there. Unfortunately, we're completely out of time. I thought we'd have uh, a bit more for me to give some of our other panelists an opportunity uh, to come in there, share the concluding remarks. But that's where we'll have to leave it. Uh, Dr. Yulamu Tiwi, Executive Director at right to care You would have heard her voice earlier on in the program alongside Cynthia Mwalulungu, who is Senior Regional Gender Advisor uh, for the UNAIDS Regional Support Team in East and Southern Africa. It's 11 o'clock. It's time for the latest news update.